I will never forget watching my sister-in-law, Katie, play soccer as a kid. Katie's 11 years younger than I am. Um, and so when I started dating my wife, she was still quite young. And she's actually was pretty good at soccer at the time. And uh, you, you ever been to like a youth sporting event and you got those really loud parents on the sideline? They're like screaming instructions. Like they think that the YMCA hired them to be the coach, but really they're not. And they probably shouldn't be. And there's a lot of screaming. If you've ever seen that, you ain't seen nothing unless you've been to a youth sporting event with my mother-in-law. This lady will yell at some kids on the field like it is the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball combined. It's the best experience ever. I don't watch the game. I just watch my mother-in-law. I'm like, that is fantastic. What are you doing? So anyway, this is going on with my sister-in-law, Katie. I think she was uh, in the sixth or seventh grade at the time. And, and every instruction, it was like minute by minute, play by play coaching, where she was like, go, Katie, run, Katie, kick, Katie, dive, Katie, throw, Katie. Katie, 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 Katie. And my sister-in-law, she was, she'd had enough, okay? So right in the middle of the field, she stops. And she goes, Mom, will you stop? Please stop. And of course, everyone stopped and looked at my mother-in-law. And I remember my mother-in-law was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and they were all quiet. And, and you continue. Like, if you've ever seen that parent going crazy, here is the conflict for my sister-in-law, Katie, and for any kid, is that, too many voices are screaming at them, so much so that they can't even hear their coach. They can't even hear their other players on the field. And I start with that story because I think that's a great place to get us into what's happening where we're studying the Bible today. If you got a Bible, grab it, open it up. We're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy, which is in the New Testament of our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to look it up on your phone. But we also have some free paper Bibles at the coffee bar in the back. They're free for anyone who needs one. So grab it, write your name in the front cover if you want to keep it forever, or just put it back when you're done with it at the end of the day if you just want to borrow it for the day. We want everybody to have a good readable version of the Bible. But we're going through this teaching series uh, through the book of 1 Timothy, and we're studying it almost verse by verse. It's something we do a couple times a year to go through a whole book of the Bible like that. And uh, last week we met Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor at a church in a, the city of Ephesus. We also have the book of Ephesians in the New Testament of the Bible written to the same group of people. There have been some problems at the church of Ephesus. And so the, Paul, the apostle Paul uh, writes a letter to his protege, Tim, to give him some help. Tim, I call him Tim. Timothy, Timothy, to give him some help, to give him some instructions. Say, hey, here's some ways that you can deal with what's going on there in Ephesus. Last week, we saw that Timothy's church was dealing with some, let's call them, leadership problems. And the people in the church were having the same issue that my sister-in-law had at the soccer game. There were too many voices telling them what to do. And a lot of times the information was, was conflicting information. But instead of a, a well-meaning group of moms on the sideline, they had what Paul called false teachers. And they were actually teaching like contrary truth to what Paul and other apostles had taught them. And, and actually leading them away from Jesus. And so last, last week the big idea was like, listen, anything that doesn't point people to Jesus is extra it's not the main point. It's not what we need to be focused on. But that's really the main idea of this whole book of 1 Timothy. Because there's a lot going on there. Not only are these false teachers there, there also seems to be this group of ladies in Ephesus that's causing some troubles as well. So as we get into chapter 2 this week, Paul is going to address those ladies and give Timothy some advice. And so we've got a lot to jump into. We're going to go through actually all of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 today. So Two chapters. Buckle in. It's a big story to get through. And I think by the end, we're going to land in a really cool place. We're going to start out. First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. Here it goes. I urge you then, first of all, 
that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in light of the troublesome people that Timothy's having to deal with, Paul gives this first piece of advice. And honestly, this is like, if you're a note taker, this is a great place to start with your notes. Anytime you're facing conflict, anytime you're dealing with people that you don't know how to deal with, Paul's advice here is solid. Pray for them. He says, in light of all this, I urge you to pray. And he gives a lot of different ways to pray by petition, uh, which is asking God for things, by intercession, which is like praying on behalf of someone else. Even thanksgiving, that's how you bring gratitude into the equation of prayer. Uh, but not, I mean, I, I think ultimately, like, yeah, it's coming out of the context of chapter one. So we're praying for those people that were causing problems. But Paul specifically mentions another group of people that he's asking Timothy and the church there to pray for. Did you see who it was? Verse two said, pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So speaking of troublesome people, in addition to the insiders that were causing trouble in the church at Ephesus, there were outsiders that were making life hard for them. Uh, in Ephesus, now we are in the Roman Empire in the first century of, of our you know history, and uh, persecution of Christians was becoming a real thing. In fact, depending on when this book was written, some people would say that it was written during the time when Emperor Nero was the emperor of Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, you know he was a bad dude, especially for Christians. And so these people are dealing with a lot of conflict, internal conflict, external conflict. And Paul says, listen, I know the Roman Empire is starting to come after us and you're having internal issues and there's external issues for maybe government leaders and other people. We're going to find out that even the culture around them was in many ways opposed to what they were doing. But here's my advice. Before we move on, before we talk about other things, pray for them. Which I think is really good advice for us today. I mean, you got a lot more to get into in chapters 2 and 3, but if we can just like take a quick camp out right here. Really good advice for us today is like when you look at your government leaders and the people in authority over you, your bosses and uh, whoever you you know have to, have to submit to, you don't always have to like it. In fact, many times we're promised that we might not like it, but you can always pray for them. Great advice. I think we should take that into consideration with all the, all the things we deal with. And he says what might be one of the most encouraging verses in the whole book of 1 Timothy in this section. Look back at verse 3. He says, this is good. And it pleases God our Savior. Listen to this. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That sentence by itself is worth the price of admission for the book of 1 Timothy. It gives us the heart of God and it lets us know that this, this hope-bringing message and a reminder, just like last week, to stay focused, to keep your eyes on the main thing. Because Timothy's dealing with a lot of distractions and we can relate with that in our modern world. And the number one thing that God wants us to know is, I want all people to come to salvation. I want all people to come to know truth, so let's pray for them. We get into verse 5 and we get a reminder of why. Why should we be praying for them and why does it matter to God? Verse 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Just so you know, this is a snapshot. This is a quick, you know, two-sentence explanation of the whole New Testament. That God became a man, that's Jesus, 
And that man, Jesus, is the mediator between all mankind and God and that he gave himself as a ransom for our sin. Like he paid the price for all of our brokenness. Verse, uh, second half of verse 6 says, This has now been witnessed at the proper time. And for this purpose, I, Paul, was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. There's one God and there's one mediator, Jesus. And so this sentence is really the starting point of the rest of our teaching today. Because a lot of times when we come in conflict with other people, it's because there's not a proper understanding of who's in charge here and what's the chain of command and who gets to make decisions and who gets to set vision and who do we follow? And he wants to establish, listen, there is one mediator to God. Don't listen to these false teachers. Don't listen to these other troublemakers. Don't, don't, don't make your government your God. There's one mediator to God. And the truth is we could camp out here for a long time. We could, we could talk about this passage uh, for a long time. But in the next several paragraphs, there's so much more to get into. So let's keep reading. Paul's going to jump into some very specific details now to the believers in Ephesus. Remember last week we talked about one of the most important things when you're reading scripture. I said context is everything. And that we need to be looking for the uh, timeless truths. And so we need to find out what is the context that we're reading into right now. Like what was the original audience like? And what's the biggest truth we can pull out? Not the cultural truth and the, the, the temporal truth of what they're dealing with in this situation. But what can we take away you know, forever? What's the timeless truth? And we pick up at verse 8 as we hear this specific situation. He says, therefore, I want men everywhere to pray. Lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, this section starts off... Okay, like, you know, it says this thing. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I think we can all be like, cool, yeah. Yeah, we think we need to stop the arguing and the disputing. And yeah, let's everywhere, let's lift up hands and pray. But then it launches into this next section, which has become one of the most controversial sections of Scripture that there ever was. Uh, it talks about women in a way that our modern culture is like, say what? Is that actually in the Bible, I think it's really important for us to understand what this is coming from. So reserve judgment. Let's leave all of our biases at the door and let's just read what it says and see what timeless truths we can walk away from with it. What I'm about to tell you and what I'm about to show you, I think will completely rewrite how you see the rest of the book of First Timothy and for that matter, the book of Ephesians, which was written to the same group of people. So let's look into some context it's vital to understand that Christianity at this time was not the prominent religious movement in Ephesus or anywhere for that matter. In fact, they were a tiny fridge, fringe, like back of the room group in Ephesus. The dominant religious group in Ephesus was a group of people that, that many people call the Artemis cult. So there was a goddess living, you know, that they, they had a temple there in, in Ephesus. The, the Greeks called her Artemis, the Romans called her Diana, but... Ephesus was the capital of Artemis worship. I mean, Artemis worship drove the economy, drove the politics, and it dramatically impacted how Christianity functioned in the city of Ephesus. Artemis uh, was a fertility goddess, and her temple was like the heart of the city of Ephesus. And as a fertility goddess, the primary form of worshiping her had to do with, I'll be delicate, but you can read between the lines, grown-ups, 18 and older, 
the, the ways we worship Artis, Artemis had to do with fertility practices. Okay, these were sexual things, vile sexual things, immoral things. I can elaborate, I won't. You can Google it if you're brave. Uh, but as a result, Ephesus had a reputation. And they had a culture similar to what many people might think of as like the Las Vegas Strip. Okay, so prostitution was rampant. People would just come there to explore their sensual sides. Uh, the family unit there was completely shattered. I mean, there just was no uh, semblance of what a family should be. Morality was a moving target. And all in the name of religion. Isn't that convenient? And so just imagine this culture that this church is being planted in. And another part of the culture in Ephesus, because of that, was the prominence of women. In a lot of areas. And so, I mean, the, the number one, you know, the big dog, big co- uh, the big, you know, leader of the area is, is Artemis, a fertility goddess. And so women enjoyed a place of prominence, a place of great influence, and a place of large voice in that area. And now, that's great. In our modern area, era, I mean, I'm all for empowering uh, ladies. And I think I love what our culture has done. We've come a long way. But this is very different in ancient culture from most other cities where women are openly oppressed, right? So you follow that. That's kind of historical. And unfortunately, we've, we've come a long way in our culture. We aren't oppressing women, and we need to continue that. As, as the father of a daughter, I want to encourage her to chase and pursue all of her hopes and dreams and to be empowered and do all kinds of things. So that's where we are as a church and where I am. But this is just history stuff, unfortunate history stuff. Here in Ephesus, though, there are a group of ladies who, empowered by their culture, have begun to take their influence way too far. And so Paul begins to call them out. They become yet another voice of conflicting leadership in the Ephesian church. The false teachers. And there's this group of ladies. So what's going on when he's like, don't wear your clothes this way and your hair this way and your jewelry? What's that about? Uh, The clothing that they wore, uh, let's call it uh, immodest clothing, gaudy jewelry, elaborate hairstyles, all these things that they sport, they were features of the pagan culture that they were coming from. And in coming into the gatherings, which they were house churches, they weren't meeting at a YMCA or in a sanctuary somewhere, this is someone's living room, coming dressed like this in smaller groups was very distracting, okay? And in, very, in many ways, completely uh, diverting attention away from who Jesus was. And the problem seems to be that we're going to find out in just a minute, that their attitude matched their outfit. And so the ways that they were acting and the ways that they were leading other people were deflecting from where Paul and any other gospel teacher would want people to go. So now this passage has led many ladies to be very conscientious and very conservative in their dress and to be very modest. Scripture is very clear about modesty, not just for women, but for men. I think modesty is a great uh, humble feature, and there's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of good reasons. Uh, This isn't about chauvinism. This isn't about uh, over-sexualizing people. It's just about, hey, let's just... Let's just uh, practice modesty in a lot of ways. And so that's a good takeaway from that in terms of timeless truth. But some Christian movements have taken it even further, forcing women uh, to dress very plainly, even calling it a sin to wear makeup and jewelry. Uh, As I read through this and as I look through the context of what's going on, I don't think that's what this is teaching at all. I think that what it's saying is like in this culture, when you did these things, you are associating with this immoral practices and this immoral culture. And so there's timeless truth that we can pull out of this that is basically about, okay, what is it in our culture that reflects that type of immorality, men and women? And do we need to bring that into our families? Do we need to bring that into our homes? The church meeting on Sunday morning is not a sacred place any more than any other part of your life. So it's not like, well, don't dress like that at church. No, don't, don't practice these things anywhere because Christ should be transforming who we are, how we see ourselves, how we project ourselves to the world. 
And so I don't think it's sinful to wear makeup or jewelry or pretty clothes. I encourage it. I love when my wife and my daughter go out shopping and get pretty things. I think it's great, and I think it's, it's, it's an awesome part of our culture. But these ladies were displaying symbols of immorality and paganism in the church setting. Which is why I want to not get lost in verse 9, okay? I want to focus on verse 10. And I'm going to rewrite it a little bit so that it includes all of us. He says, instead, we need to adorn ourselves with good deeds appropriate for all people, not just women, who profess to worship God. When you get up and put things on, we need to robe ourselves in Christ, as Paul says in other places. We need to adorn ourselves with good works. I love what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, let people see your good works so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. So there's some truth that comes out of that. The big idea that we need to see out of this section is that the people's hearts were in an unhealthy place. And so we keep moving through the passage. Now in verse 11 through 15, uh, without all of the context that we just talked about, verses 11 through 15, I'm just going to be straight with you. It is rough, okay? It is rough. And as I read it, I'm like, why did we choose to teach through 1 Timothy? Like, I don't want to have to talk about this stuff in public. Um, But as you look at the culture and everything that we just said, it actually comes out in a little bit less rough of a place. And uh, I think we're going to land in a healthy place this morning. But let's just read it because it's there. I got what I was given, right? Thanks, Paul. Here we go. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Ouch. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. Okay, obviously, this passage leaves us with a lot of questions. I continue to have questions about this. I've read commentary on top of commentary about this passage. I've had a ton of conversations the last month or so, like, what do you make of this? Uh, because when you look at it, it actually, it actually conflicts with some other ideas we see in Scripture. So I'm just going to be real with you. Like, when I look at this Scripture, I don't know what to do with it. But we're going to do something with it this morning. I think that it helped. This is where I've helped to find some clarity in it, okay? Um, there's a lot of situational specifics happening in this situation. First, we talked about the Artemis cult, the position of women in this culture, and, and all of that. And so we see, like, okay, I get it. There's a cultural thing happening there for sure. Like, there's no one who denies that. Um, apparently, there was this group of women who were really causing problems. And so I'm thinking they had names. Like, this isn't just, like, women in general. But it's like, okay, these four ladies have got to stop. And I don't know if you've ever been in leadership somewhere, but when, like, there's people causing real problems, sometimes the best advice is, like, can you make them be quiet? (laughs) Can you make them shut up? It seems to me that on some level, that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Like, first stop, first step for you. You need to find these ladies. You need to make them stop. Because, again, this is situationally specific. So Paul advises Timothy to do that. But even though it sounds like Paul is completely forbidding women to teach or even talk in public, this is where I have issues and problems and something as a church we can just walk through together. There are other places in Scripture where you totally see ladies in leadership and teaching and doing all kinds of great things that a man would be doing. And so we see, for example, in the Bible where uh, there's a lady named Priscilla. Priscilla lives in the city of Corinth, and she's someone that is praised by Paul as a great teacher, and she's got instructions. She and her husband are missionaries, and uh, there are some people who actually give uh, 
Priscilla credit for helping to compose some of the New Testament that we have today. That's disputed, but even the fact that the conversations on the table is huge. Many people call Priscilla the first female preacher. And so you look at that, and Paul's like, yeah, thumbs up to Priscilla. Priscilla's doing all kinds of great things. There's evidence of that. We see it in Scripture. Uh, we see, for example, the, the position of what they call the prophetess. If you know what a prophet is, in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, the prophet, their primary job of a prophet is to teach. It's, it's a misunderstanding that the primary job of a prophet is to predict the future. That's actually not what prophets did in the Old Testament. It's not what prophets did in the New Testament. The word prophet means to for, uh, foretell. It's the idea of like, I'm, I'm telling you something. I'm teaching you something. Certainly some of the things they taught uh, had indications and stuff in the future, especially stuff about Jesus. But that's not the primary role. And so we see Old Testament and New Testament, particularly in the city of Corinth, prophetesses, female prophets, female teachers. We've got the role of the deaconess, a deacon. We're going to talk about deacons in just a minute because it comes up in our passage. But you know, a deacon is not primarily a teaching role in the church, but it's certainly a position of, of some level of leadership and authority. And so we see females in that role. And so what do we do in light of all of that that I just said, Priscilla, prophetesses, deaconesses, what do we do in, in, in light of verses 11 and 12 that we just read? Is there a contradiction there? There seems to be. Um, what do we do with it? I, I'm going to tell you what I do with it. I do the same thing that Christians have been doing with it for hundreds and hundreds of years. I wrestle with it. End of sermon. Let's pray. I wrestle with it. I don't know. I have, I have an 11-year-old girl living in my house. And the other day, she straight up got on my laptop. Is she in here? I don't think she is. Sweet. I love telling stories on her when she's not in here. And she got on my laptop. She wrote a, a, a like page and a half devotional. She just had this idea. She was like, can I write your sermon this week? And she wrote it out. I was like, dang, that is good. They'll be glad. They'll be out of here quick. Um, it, it was good. And, and so I want to I encourage that. I want to empower that. We've met with our elders, and, uh, and we've talked a lot about this passage and what does this mean for the modern church. And I want to let you know, we have ladies that have led small groups with men in them. We have had ladies share from the stage as teachers. We have had um, women lead in all kinds of areas in our church. What do we do with as a church? We wrestle with it. That's what we do. And we look at the culture of Ephesus and we say, okay, there was obviously something specific going on there. And then we say, what can we pull out of it? Make sure our heart's in the right place. Make sure we're not distracting people from the main thing. Modesty is obviously a thing. And then we step back and go, okay, where's the ultimate authority lie? Well, there's one God and one mediator who is Christ. And it seems that Paul carries on uh, and teaches us a bigger lesson. So we're going to cross over into chapter 3 now because uh, there's another lesson in this passage that I think is even more consistent. In fact, 100% consistent with all the rest of Scripture. And it is this. People need leadership. All people. Without leadership, there's chaos, there's anarchy. It's a mess. We've seen it happen. And when you look at all of society, this is a truth that I, I think we can agree on. That on average, men are a certain way. And on average... Women are a certain way. We kind of average out. Now, there are these amazing anomalies of men and women who can kind of do dual roles. But I'll tell you what, as a mom, I would stink. I just 
can't. It's just I don't have I don't have much compassion uh, and patience and a lot of the things that moms you guys crush it. Like there's a lot of things and and ladies the same thing could be said true. It's not chauvinism. It's not sexism. It's not. It's just like look. Let's just take averages. Okay, worldwide for thousands and thousands of years. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm just saying look. This seems to be the case and it and it doesn't surprise me that when God begins to put things in order in creation, and he recognizes the idea that there needs to be structure, there needs to be order, he starts at the very beginning. And when he looks at the family, he says, listen, guys, I need you to lead this thing. Men, I expect you to be the authorities in your families, not the overbearing, holding a big stick authority, but no, the loving and guiding authority. Now, many of us grew up in a home where there wasn't a man who had any sense about him to be a leader. And guess what happens so often? A lady steps into that role better than that dude ever could and kills it. And it's great. And so that happens. But I think God's desire is to challenge men to step up and to lead. And so I think in this particular instance in Ephesus, another lesson might be this. He's saying to those guys, guys, you are bums, okay? In the culture that you're living in, in Ephesus, the family unit is falling apart. And what we need is men to step up and be leaders, spiritual leaders in their home. And to these ladies who apparently are causing problems and coming to church all trashy, you need to sit down and be quiet. You need to step back. And if you've ever been in leadership, you know you've had to say hard things like that before. That's my takeaway. And then we keep wrestling with it. And when it comes to leadership in the church, we pick up in chapter 3. Because I think what Paul wants to teach Timothy is, listen... There can be a better way of leadership in your church. And it's not these false teachers. And it's not these loud ladies. Let's give some qualifiers for the type of person that should be leading your church. We good to move on to chapter 3? I sure am glad we are. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. We're talking about leadership here, but this title, overseer, is one that I'm going to say is interchangeable with one word that we use here at our church, elder. And so there's a lot of words in the New Testament that describe the leaders of the church, the elders, the overseers, there's a couple of others. Um, And so when you hear the word overseer, and if you've been a part of our church for a little while, you know we've got some elders at our church. It doesn't mean old, though they might would make a joke about that. It means someone that you look up to in terms of, of spiritual leadership. And so that's who we're talking about. And then he keeps saying in verse 2, he says, Now the overseer, the elder, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family... How can he take care of God's church? Now, as you see that list, you can see what Timothy must have been dealing with. Because that is a great list of ways that a leader should act. And it seems to me that Paul's saying to Timothy, the leaders you have don't have those qualities. (laughs) They aren't all these things. They aren't above reproach. They aren't, you know, careful with how much wine they drink. They don't have good reputations. They don't take care of their families. But when you have leaders in your church, you need to make sure they're these types of people. Verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert. So there's wisdom in that. If you're going to be a spiritual leader, you, you probably shouldn't be like a brand new believer. It needs to be like, okay, I've had some experience in this. I've had this. I've wrestled with 
you know, First Timothy chapter 2. You know, I've spent some time with, not like I just heard about it. I don't know. Uh, I'm not making breast decisions. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may be become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So that's elders. On someday in March 2018, do you remember 2018? Pre-pandemic, pre-Hurricane Florence. So if you don't remember March 2018, you get a pass. It was like, I don't know if Wilmington was here then. There's pictures that prove it. It was a long time ago in my brain. But in March of 2018, Venture Church set aside and appointed our first group of overseers, our first group of elders. Uh, when I was guessing earlier, I was like, I think we've had elders for like six years. It hasn't been that long. It's only been March 2018 because that's how this last couple years have been. Another word for that position is pastor. Uh, the word pastor means shepherd. And, uh, and you can kind of hear the word pasture in the word pastor. It's like this, the person who oversees the pasture. And so I joke with our elders all the time and I call them pastor and they're like, no, 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 I'm not the pastor. You're the pastor. Actually, it's only recently that the preacher person has been called a pastor. So there's a lot of churches that don't call their preacher the pastor. Um, so pastor, pastor, we got some pastors in the room. Um, and so that we did that in 2018 and the role of the overseer was not something that any of these guys took lightly. In fact, it was something that we spent a lot of time preparing for. Uh, in fact, six years before that, a group of people began praying for them. This church is a brand new church. We turned eight years old in September, and uh, it's been about ten years since the process of getting this church started began. And a group of people began to pray specifically for leaders in this church to rise up. Lots of leaders, but specifically a group of elders. So that as this church began to grow, we moved from location to location here, and to Alderman Elementary School, and to the AMC Movie Theater, and in every public park in between um and people would come and join our community there was always a group of us that was just like looking out me like who is god seemed to be rising to the top as leaders in this area and so about 14 months before march 2018 these four people had risen to the top in our minds and so i approached each one of them and i said hey would you like to consider being an elder i love that every single one of them without fail said i don't feel qualified for that which, by the way, if anyone ever asks you if you want to be an elder, that should be your answer. I don't feel qualified for that. Humility is a big part of that. But we said, okay, yeah, well, let's give it some time to think about it. Maybe other people think you are. And then for 14 months, we met every single month, sometimes twice a month. And we got to know each other. And we confessed sins together. We wanted to be transparent. We'd be like, what's our brokenness? What's our hurting? We talked about our families, our wives, and our children. And we got to know our families' you know, names more intimately and know what they're dealing with, know who they are. Because, like, you know what? These guys are going to be leaders in a spiritual war here in Wilmington. They need to be prepared to know who am I standing shoulder to shoulder with. And one thing we also spent a lot of time doing was studying First Timothy chapter 3. Because <laughs> this is the type of people they needed to aspire to be. Today, these guys are still learning this role. I got a picture of them. Do we have that up there? Brandon, William, James, George. If you haven't met some of these guys, they want to meet you. Uh, when you look at the role of an elder, what they've decided and determined is that their job, that their calling is to be the spiritual leaders in this church. There's a lot of ways you can learn, lead finances and programming and logistics and all kinds of ways. But they said, we want to be spiritual leaders in our, our church family. And they want to care for you. And they want to know when there's loudmouths pointing us in the wrong direction, 
that these four guys, and in the future there'll be other people, will step in and say no. Just like Paul said to Timothy, you've got to make them be quiet. That these would be the four who would protect this community from that. And stand in the gap and have awkward conversations. And decide, what do we believe? And what do we teach? As we wrestle through the hard stuff, what are we going to land on? I'm thankful for our elders. I want to ask you to pray for them and to be glad that they're here. Uh, God loves order. And he loves it when we measure our lives by the standard set in Scripture. And part of the pecking order for our church in terms of authority is that there's one God with one mediator who is Christ Jesus. And then overseeing the spiritual guidance of our church is our four elders. And that's how we try to, to live it. And so I love these guys. As we wrap up our chapter today, verse 8, it gives us a peek at something our elders are currently praying through and working towards. Let's read verse 8. This is the last section today. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife. They must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance of their faith in Christ Jesus. So our elders right now are praying over, like, what does it mean for us to begin to place some deacons in place? Let's talk about that. The word deacon means one who waits tables. A deacon is a servant. And a deacon is someone who comes in and takes care of people. If the elders were responsible for the spiritual care of the congregation, then the deacons are kind of responsible for the physical care of our, response, our congregation. And maybe you've been a part of a group where it meant like, that means the deacons mow the grass and they hold the keys to the doors and they fix the leaky pipes in the church building. And yeah, probably, probably some of that. But more specifically, like in your homes. And there's a lot of evidence that we see taking care of the older uh People in the church who need help, uh, widows and orphans are specifically mentioned in other places. Like people who are less fortunate or don't have as many people looking out for them. Like that's a role that a deacon can fill. Notice that when it gives the list of the qualifiers for what a deacon should be, if you compare it note for note with what the qualifiers for an elder are, there's really not much difference. Uh, it's like, no, you still need to be a solid Christian who's living out these virtues or at least aspiring to. And so it's not that they're like less spiritual than the elders. It's, it's more about like the calling and what do you feel best doing and what, do you, what are you capable of taking care of. And so that becomes a role that we see in the early church and that's what Tom, Timothy has spoken to about Paul. I'm so thankful that we have a healthy church family and that we don't have some of these loud mouth problems and I don't perceive that we have false teachers trying to steal the spotlight and I'm glad we have the safeguards of a good eldership and healthy families because I want to be a place where people who are far from God can come and find growth. Not find infighting, not find arguments, not finding all these other mess that sideline issues. But that we can lead people directly to what matters most. The truth is found in Jesus. That he can make your brokenness whole. That he can transform you. You might be in a place right now where that's, that's you. You're like, I don't know. I don't really do church. I showed up with a friend. I found you on the internet. I don't know. I'm watching online right now. And I don't know why I'm still watching. I'm just captivated. Like, I don't know. But I want you to know this is a safe place to grow and explore that. And I want to encourage you to come back. Be part of what we're doing. More than a sit and listen to a talk every week community, we're family. We do stuff together. We grow together. And as Paul closes this section, I think it's a, a, an encouragement to all of us if we just look at verse 14 and to the end. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Guys, there's a lot in that passage, but the thing that I want us to be reminded of is that the church is God's household. Not his building. A household is a family with a father. That's what a household is, historically. We're his household. We're his representatives to the world and to the city of Wilmington. Our conduct, how we act among insiders and outsiders, reflects our father. And we should reflect his glory with our character and with the way that we love. That's 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3. Let's pray.